Jesus came to turn outsiders into insiders. Last year, um, the infamous street artist known as Banksy did a bit of street art in my parents and my sister's town in Wales. It was not there one day. People woke up the next morning and it was there, painted on the some unsuspecting victim's garage. Now we say victim, he then went and sold it for, you know, a six-figure sum. So, uh, you know, I guess if you are going to have any, if you are going to have anyone do some graffiti on your property, then you want it to be someone like, like, like Banksy. And it's called Season's Greetings, and it's, it's a very powerful piece of art there. Um, but this was all over the news, and uh, one of the reasons I've, I've learned why Banksy is so popular is because people don't know who he or she is. <clears throat> so if you were to search who is Banksy on Google, you would find out that there are many theories, there are many top 10 lists of the most likely person who is actually Banksy, but no one seems to know. And in a sense, Jesus was like the Banksy of Palestine, right? Uh, he was someone who was painting a new reality with his words and with his miracles. And, and as he was doing this, people were trying to place him, were trying to pigeonhole him, were trying to identify him, were trying to uncover who he is. But no one seemed to quite know. Now, last week, Nathan uh, summed up chapters 1 through 8 of Luke with this phrase, do not fear, Jesus is near. And now in uh, now chapter 9, um, verse 18, Jesus asks his closest friends, who do the crowds say that I am? And from this question, um, it's very clear that, that what others think of Jesus matters to him. He is genuinely interested in your opinion of him. And so through chapters 9 through 13, which is what we're going to be scanning over this morning in the first part of the message, um, we get an insight into how those people around Jesus viewed him. Because they're all trying to make head or tail of this mystery man, Jesus. So he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And so in verse 9 of chapter 9, we have Herod saying, I chopped off John's head. So who is this that I'm hearing things about? And, 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 and actually we read there that Herod tried to see Jesus himself. He's trying to work out who he is. And the closest reference point that he has is John. But he knows that he's already lopped off John's head. And then in verse 17 of chapter 9, we see this massive crowd. So try to picture it in your mind's eye with this massive crowd of people who see Jesus as a miracle-working bread multiplier. But who is Jesus? Verse 19, is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he, is he one of the prophets? Okay, so I'd like you to imagine, if you were one of Jesus' closest friends right there in that circle... And someone comes up to you, uh, if, in fact, let's say that Jesus comes up to you and says to you, who do you say that I am? Okay, he's asked, he's, he's asked everyone else, he's got everyone else's um, insight. He then walks up to you and says, who do you say that I am? I want you to turn to the person next to you and in 30 seconds tell them, if Jesus was to ask you, who do you say that I am, what would you say? Okay, Go.
Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus for you? No, seriously, if you've not said to the person next to you, turn to them and start talking. This, is, this isn't a democracy. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus is interested in how you view him. And he asks Simon Peter, right? And Simon Peter says, God's Messiah. So nailed it, right? This is Simon Peter really getting it right. So at least one person knows. And then in verse, and then we move on to verse, uh, verse 28 of chapter 9. And Peter, James, and John get a tiny little glimpse of who Jesus really is up on this mountain in his glorified state. And it's major, and they see Jesus kind of hobnobbing it with Moses and with Elijah, and they realize that Jesus is a big player. And then they learn straight from God's mouth that Jesus is his son. So who is Jesus? Now, through chapters 9 through 13, Jesus keeps on trying to drop these hints about the harder and the sadder side of who he is. So who is Jesus? Well, verse 21 and verse 44 of chapter 9 tells us that he will be the one who hangs on the cross. But no one seems to really get it because they're still full of the miracle bread and they're still blinded by that miracle light up on top of the mountain. So suffering is very far from their minds, but still Jesus drops these subtle hints and sometimes not so subtle hints that there is uh, this reality heading his way. And then verse 57 tells us, so if you've not turned to it yet, turn to verse 57 in chapter 9. And Jesus tells us that he is the kind of person who requires everything of those who follow him. He says that he's leading them into hardship where they will have to choose between a warm home and security and homelessness, between being, being, being obedient to him and knowing the, the love of their families. Okay, so just for a moment, imagine if we put that as part of our evangelistic strategy. Okay, if you come to Jesus, you'll have salvation, you'll have cleansing of your sin, you'll have a new start, you'll have homelessness, you'll have to leave your family. Who would sign up? Well, apparently, there were at least 72 people who signed up because he then sends them out. And then, um, uh, 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 these words of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 62, no one who puts a hand hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And then there are these 72 people who are willing to place their hands on the plow and to follow him. And he sends them out in twos uh, as this kind of, as like a promo tour for him so that those towns um, on the route that he will take know that he is on the way. And then there's this amazing uh, moment in verse 21 of chapter 10 that's worth having a little bit of a pause on, a little bit of a rest on. So please turn to chapter, to verse 21 of, of, of chapter 10 that says this. At that time, okay, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says this, okay, at that time, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, okay, so this is real, this is, this is God saying something powerful, uh, Jesus says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased 
to do. Now, the guy that wrote Luke, we think his name's Luke, and he's probably the Luke that's referenced in Paul's letters later on and in Acts. But the author of Luke is a Gentile, so he's an outsider. He's not an us, he's a them. But it's clear as he records these words of Jesus in chapter 10 and the language that he uses that he's passionate about God's heart for the outsider, for the thems of this world. And so you get this kind of sense of glee as Luke writes down these words from his source. And you can imagine him kind of saying, okay, repeat it again because I'm not sure if I caught it the first time. You're saying that as Jesus said this, that he was saying that he's come especially for those who are childlike and struggle and not that smart. That as he said this, that he was full of joy through the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, okay, write it down, write it down. Now, Luke wouldn't have heard these words himself because he wasn't there and he never actually met Jesus. But when he hears these words of outsiders becoming insiders, he has to include chapter 10, verse 21 in his account. And why is that an encouragement for us? Well, here's why. Because if you've ever felt not very well read or not educated enough, if you've ever felt that you're not quite up to the task, well, Luke tells you that the Bible has been written for you. You're on the inside track. You have an advantage. And all those smart folks and self-righteous types who think that they know so much and are all that, well, they're the ones who are now caught on the back foot. So as an outsider, Luke loves the outsiders and he loves that Jesus loves the outsiders. And so there's this theme running all the way through Luke where the outsiders are on the inside and those who thought they were on the inside actually find themselves on the outside. Because the good news of Jesus is for those who think that they're not worthy of the good news. Amen? Which means that the good news of Jesus is for your alcoholic neighbor. And the good news of Jesus is for your unemployed friend. It's for your mother who never graduated high school. It's for your son who struggles with mental illness. It's for your cousin who's in the LGBT plus community. It's for your grandson who's in his 20s and he's still living at home playing video games. It's your parents who are struggling with all the money that they owe, thinking that they're never going to be able to get out of debt. The good news of Jesus is for them, the outsiders. And it's for you and for your sexual secrets and your anger problems. The gospel is for you. Jesus is for you. At that time, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Now, there's a ton more that we can find out about who is Jesus in chapters 9 through 13. I've hardly scratched the surface. You should read it through if you haven't as part of the seven-day Bible reading challenge. But one of the, one of the um, key things that I want to leave you with, or the key ideas, reading through chapters 9 through 13, is that Jesus is a teacher. If, if you were to look at the real estate of chapters 9 through 13, you would find that it is overrun 
by Jesus's, Jesus's teaching. It's, it's like a weed. It's across the whole of the landscape. Yes, there are a few miracles, but most of chapters 9 through 13 are words, are sentences, are ideas, are truth from Jesus's mouth. And there are sometimes when he's teaching in general to a large crowd, like in chapter 11, verse 33, where Jesus is talking to a big crowd of outsiders and he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. And then sometimes he's speaking truth into a specific group of outsiders like, like he speaks to the Pharisees in chapter 11, verse 39. Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Spoken to a specific group of people who needed a specific message. I guess that probably that was the last time that Jesus was invited to that Pharisee's house for a meal. But then there are these moments where Jesus kind of just hunkers down with those closest to him and he whispers words of specific truth into their lives, like in chapter 12, verse 32, where he says this, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give, give them to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail when no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and so and so jesus seems to ebb and flow between the large crowd and the small group the large crowd and the small group and there are parables there's teaching he shouts sometimes he whispers sometimes and through it all jesus is instituting a new way of life it's a kingdom of, of ideas that starts off looking like a mustard seed but ends up growing into a tree like chapter nine chapter 12 verse 19 tells us it's a kingdom of words and of concepts and of ideas that is as small as yeast but works its way through everything and transforms everything it's a kingdom that is founded on the words of Jesus and Luke records all of this so that we may know the certainty of the things that we have been taught. Chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus has come for the outsider. Jesus loves the outsider. And Jesus is building a subversive kingdom of outsiders who suddenly find out, shock horror, that they are insiders. And I think that for us in this church here, that one of the most effective ways that Satan undermines this kingdom of outsiders is by sneaking in this insider mindset. Let me say that again. One of the most subversive ways that Satan um, undermines this kingdom made up of outsiders is by sneaking in this insider mindset. And so we hear things like us versus them, or those folks, or they're not like us. Right? There's this author, Bill Henson, who says this, a gospel that excludes or rejects has no power to reach already banished or mistreated persons. Let's hear that again. If we have a gospel that excludes or rejects, then it has no power to reach already banished or mis mistreated persons. 
And so Jesus, in his grace, is passionate about exposing our hypocritical insider mentality hearts. He loves it. He loves revealing to us when we've allowed this us versus them mentality to creep into our hearts, creep into our homes, creep into our social media accounts, and even creep into our church. Because he knows that this attitude more than any other makes the church lose any credibility that it has with the world that already feels that it's on the outside. And so one of the passages that he does this, and this is where we're going to do our soap focus, scripture observation, application, and prayer. And uh, so this passage where he exposes this is Luke 13 verse 1. So let's turn there and focus our thoughts there for a moment. Luke 13 verse 1. Please turn there if you're not there already. It says this, now there were some present at this time who told Jesus about, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Okay, so let's put on our observation glasses and take a moment to look at these few verses. The first thing that we read is, is this. Now, there were some present at that time. So what Jesus is saying now connects to what just took place. So we ask ourselves, as good observers, what just happened? Well, Jesus has just said a lot about judgment. In chapter 12, verse 49, he's just said, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish that it were already kindled. And then Jesus says in verse 51 that he's not come to bring peace, which is funny because he's the prince of peace, but he's not come to, to bring peace, but rather division. And then in verse 57, he talks again about, about he, he talks more about judgment using a very human example. And so it's in this context of Jesus talking about judgment that in chapter 13, verse 1, something sparks in people's minds as they're listening to him. You know those moments when someone says something and then your brain makes a leap from their words to something else and then suddenly you're on that rabbit trail and you're thinking about that rather than what they were just saying? Hands up if you've ever done that. Hands up if you're doing it now because now you're thinking about that. No. Well, these people hear Jesus talking about judgment, and then they mentally switch to two of the hot news stories in the papers that morning. Headline one was local Jews' blood mixed with sacrifice, and headline two is tower falls and kills pool people. And because of what Jesus was just talking about, it appears that the people who were listening to him are interpreting these awful events of state-sponsored murder, verse 1, and a tower falling and killing people, verse 4, as somehow being a judgment of God, that God is involved. Now, now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, it reminds me of the questions that are asked after lots of the tough things that happen in our world, after school shootings, after arena shootings, after LGBT club shootings, after suicide bombings in... in in Afghanistan, after church shootings, we find people ask this question, was this God's work? And if it was God's work, then probably it's because these people are bad somehow, and this, work, and this earth 
is actually better off without them. Now, we can't read God's mind, right? Which is why we, you know, you know, we sometimes ask this. We can't read God's mind, but Jesus can, because Jesus is who? Is God, so he's reading his own mind. And, God, and Jesus can also read our minds, because he's God, and he can kind of unmask these self-righteous um, thoughts that we, that we allow to creep in. And so verse 2, like no one's actually asked this, but, but Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then verse 4, do you think that those who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them were more guilty than others li- living in, in, in Jerusalem? And what happens then is that when the people in the safety of the crowd start to hear their secret thoughts and prejudices and judgments exposed, they kind of start to look at each other shamefaced because Jesus has expressed the truth of what they were hinting at, but too cowardly to actually say. And so they, you know, it's, this isn't in the Bible, but I could imagine them responding to him saying, well, no, of course we weren't thinking that, Jesus. We're really good Jews. We're good church people. We don't think things like that, but now that you've raised the question whether God caused the death of those people, we're actually kind of interested in the answer, so why don't you let us know what your thoughts are? And, and so Jesus answers their unspoken questions. Did God make Pilate kill these people? Did God push over the tower? He answers it quite clearly. He says, I tell you, no, of course not. Now, notice that Jesus, he's not saying that the people who were killed were innocent. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even hint at that. But what he does is he breaks down the assumptions of the people around him at that moment that there are some people who are more guilty in this world than them. That there is an us and a them. What, what, what we read in the Bible instead is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, is that we've all failed, that we're all outsiders. We are all them. And so Jesus says this, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. You know, that we, we uh, sometimes have an idea that God's moving us around on a chessboard, and sometimes when people cross this threshold of sin that God kind of, you know, flicks over a tower and says, you know, says checkmate. But each time Jesus says, that's not his heart. He says, I tell you no, because the issue here isn't sin. Okay, if the issue was sin, then every church should have a church shooting every Sunday. We should all have towers falling on us every day of the week, but that's not how God's grace operates. If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Psalm 130 verse 3. So, but how do we access this, this freedom from our sin? By repenting. And so in verse 3 and verse 5 of Luke 13, Jesus says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so what Jesus is really doing here is, he's, is he grabs those headline articles and he gets us to think beyond them. 
He, he takes those tragedies that happen in this fallen, broken world, and he's asking us to see beyond them. He takes our self-righteous judgments and our quiet, respectful, or respectable, you know, uh, I'm saying respectable, you know, these, you know, he takes our judgments and our prejudices that we hide behind a veneer of respectability and in his grace, he holds up a mirror in front of us and says, what about you? He takes our us versus them language and he teaches us that in his universe, the only us versus them is a holy God versus sinful humanity. So what unites every human that's ever lived is our sin and our need of repentance. Okay, so those are some observation points. Let's now try to apply what we've just learned Okay, so when we read about something that sounds, I love reading the news. I read it every morning. And it's easy to see, you know, the people who have been impacted by that news article as less than human. Here's, here's an example. With, um, with, with what's happened with the coronavirus, with COVID-19, uh, we've, that, that it's led to an outbreak of something else, um, an outbreak of sino, sinophobia, which means that in some countries... There are, there are shops and there are places who are saying, if you are Chinese or you look Chinese, you aren't allowed in because we're afraid. It's this us versus them mentality that's led to some very ugly scenes. And as we read Luke 13 verses 1 through 5, we don't read that the people talking to Jesus are moved by, by these two incidents. They're not upset by them. You know, we don't see that at all. You know, they don't seem affected or troubled. You know, they don't seem to view these people who were killed as real people who've lost their lives. Instead, they just see it as a juicy piece of information to share um, that these are people who have probably done something wrong and they probably really deserved it. They are them and we are us. And so with our media-saturated, hyper-connected lives where it seems that there's always some tragedy taking place or some atrocity taking place, it's so easy to respond in a way that does not bring God honor. And so we fire off a comment or we post an article or we draw a conclusion about people that dehumanizes them, that makes them less than human. And our language lacks, lacks compassion. And so in our conversations, in our minds, what we've done is we've turned these people into a them. And the only reason that they're a them is because they're not like us. So how should these people in the crowds have responded? And how should we respond when we read about tragedies in the news? Well, what Jesus tells us is that when we hear about someone else's life being cut short it should drive us to think of eternity. It should make me think, am I ready to pass through the doorway from which there is no return? Those folks in Syria, in Yemen, in Rwanda, in China, in Germany, in South Korea, they were no worse than we are. And yet they have no more opportunity to respond to the grace of our God. And so friends, when I read Jesus' words in chapter in verse 2 of chapter 13, I don't read him as yelling. I don't read him as, as angry. I read these, verse, these words as Jesus pleading. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will also perish. And so this isn't Jesus slapping them on the wrist. 
This is Jesus reaching out in grace for them to repent. Metanoia is this word. Repent, which means change the way you're thinking or living and bring it into conformity with God's vision for his universe. This is what repentance means. So friends, where do you need to repent? Where do you need to change the way that you're living or thinking and bring it into conformity with God's vision for his universe? Because where there is no repentance, there isn't any forgiveness. When there isn't any, any forgiveness, there is sin. And where there is sin, there's a division between you and God. And the whole wonder of the message of the cross is that in his incredible grace and love, Jesus himself abandoned the privilege of being an us. And he made himself into a them so that he could transform thems into us's. Not good English, but good theology. Right? 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was an us, yet for your sake, a them, he became poor, a them, so that you through his poverty might become rich, might become an us. Jesus left his rights as an us and became a them so that he could transform thems into us's. And that offer is open to everyone, anyone who considers themselves a them. Jesus wants to cleanse you of the guilt and the shame and the eternal consequences of your sin and transform you into his likeness and bring you into the family. He wants to make you into an us. And the last thing I'd like to leave you with is that if you are already an us, if you've already accepted Christ's offer, then praise God. But be really vigilant that you do not let any hint of us versus them creep into your language or into your thinking. Instead, keep repenting. Keep changing the way that you think. Keep metanoying. And your prayer should be about how best can you spend your life Utilize your resources, spend your money, use your years, leverage your influence with one end in mind, mind to communicate to the thems of this world that in Jesus they can be an us. Not an us in relation to you and I, but an us in relation to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to turn outsiders into insiders. And I'd like to close with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 14. Please feel free to read along, because these are powerful words. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. Let me read with a couple of words of uh, thoughts as we go along. For Christ's love compels us. Is Christ's love compelling you? For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, safe and secure in their status as us, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, therefore, in view of this, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, when we were a them, we, we do so no longer now that we are in us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. We are now insiders. 
The old has gone where we were considered outsiders. The new is here now that we are known as insiders. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself, turning outsiders into insiders through Christ who was the ultimate insider and gave us the the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, turning outsiders into insiders and not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, that's you and I, if you're an insider, if you're an us, this is your job, this is your responsibility, this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us because the job of an ambassador is to live among the thems and to close the gap between us and them. And here, my friend, is our message as God's ambassadors. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Turn into an us with God, because God made him who had no sin. Jesus wasn't an outsider to be sin, becoming an outsider for us who in our nature are outsiders, so that in him who is by nature an insider, we might become the righteousness of God. And so as God's co-workers, insiders, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the time of salvation, in the day of salvation, I helped you. And then Paul finishes by saying, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation.